encourage you to get a Bible and be turning to the book of Ezekiel. We're continuing a study through the book of Ezekiel as we are working on my servants, the prophets. We're making a study of the major prophets in quite a quick fashion. And we are working our way through Ezekiel. This is the second of four studies in Ezekiel. And obviously that's going to be quite fast paced. And so we're ready to look at chapter 12 in just a moment. We'll pick up there at chapter 12. This is an outline of the book of Ezekiel that we have been following, adapted from Baxter and Wearsby. Where we're in chapters 1 to 24, it deals with the judgment on Jerusalem. You remember that Ezekiel is an exile prophet, and he's working among the exiles and talking about he went into, the, into captivity in the second invasion and is prophesying to those people about things concerning the third and final invasion of Jerusalem. That Jerusalem will fall despite the fact the false prophets are saying it's not going to fall. We're going to see more about that even in our study tonight. We're ready to look at chapters 12 to 24 in our study tonight. Last time we looked at chapters 1 through 11, we saw the call of the prophet. We saw a disobedient nation and how the scene of the glory departing as one of the three visions in the book. The first one was in chapter 1. The second one is in 8 through 11 of the glory departing from the temple. We're ready to look at a disciplined nation, and that's where we're going to spend our time. And we're not going to go any further than that in our study tonight. There are two major points to be considered and understood when we walk away from our study tonight. If we see this idea that judgment is coming upon this nation of Judah, and secondly, that sin and rebellion is the cause, then we've seen the point of chapters 12 to 24. And so what do we learn practically from that? Well, uh, we learned that a nation rebelled against God and they paid the price. And if we rebel against God, we pay the price. And so it is practical to us and not just to look at a historical setting. Let's begin in chapter 12 now. Chapter 12, we're going to hit some high points. And perhaps uh, you may find it helpful as I do as I go through a chapter. We don't have time to deal with every verse of every chapter. But I've circled the verses that summarize and, and make the pertinent point. The other verses are important. They're not saying they're not important. We're just looking at the highlights, and, and so uh, I'm going to call out several verses that will summarize a particular chapter. So let's talk about chapter 12. What happens in chapter 12? Chapter 12 deals with two signs that captivity will soon come. That is, there's already been two uh, attacks against J Judah, and two groups have gone into captivity, and now they're waiting for the third, but some of the prophets are saying it isn't going to happen. So let's see what happens, and we'll see more about that at the end of chapter 12. Here's the first. The prophet acts out going into captivity. Notice at verse 3, that would be one of the key verses. Therefore, son of man, prepare your belongings for captivity and go into captivity by day in their sight, and you shall go from your place into captivity to another place in their sight, and it may be that they will consider, though they are rebellious house. What's he doing? Well, the prophet was told, gather up your belongings, and prepare like you're going off into captivity. And so vi visually go through this process of packing your belongings and get ready to go and dig through the wall. Perhaps that's an outer wall around the house, not the, perhaps the house itself, and carry your belongings through. And verse 5, now verse 6. In their sight you shall bear them, that is your belongings, on your shoulder and carry them out by twilight and cover your face. That is the idea of perhaps humility, that in humility he's having leave and go and off into captivity and so act that out for them 
And so at verse 7, he said, So I did as I was commanded. That was a sign indeed to the house uh, of Israel. Now look at verse 11, he said, Say to them, I am a sign to you, and as I have done, so shall it, be, uh, shall it be done to them. They shall be carried away into captivity. So they're going off into Babylonian captivity. The third group is going to go. And so he's just acted that out in their presence. So when they begin to ask uh, Ezekiel, what are you doing? What's, what's all this thing? Are you packing your bags? And you, I saw you dig through the wall, and you're going out and covering your face. And he gives him a chance to say, you're going into captivity as well. Now here's a second sign, verses 12, 17 through 20. And that is he was to eat bread, shaking and trembling. So now notice down at verse 18, Son of man, eat your bread with quaking and drink water with trembling and anxiety. And so act out this eating of bread as if you're shaking and trembling and the same thing of drinking your, your water uh, in anxiety. And then say to the people, Thus says the Lord God to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the land of Israel, that you shall eat bread with anxiety and drink water with dread. In other words, you're going to go to a foreign land and it's not going to be uh, a party when you get there. You're going to be eating bread and drinking water out of anxiety and trembling and shaking. So you're going into captivity is what's going to take place. Now at verse 21 beginning through the rest of the chapter, here is the response the prophet makes or God makes through the prophet to the people's misconception about this. So notice at verse 22 he said, Son of man, what is the proverb that the people have about the land of Israel? The days are prolonged and every vision fails. What was the proverb the people were saying? Well, they're saying the days are prolonged and every vision fails. In other words, this prophecy of Judah uh, uh, falling or Jerusalem falling and the city falling and the temple being uh, collapsing is not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. So verse 23, you tell them that I will lay this proverb to rest and there shall be no more the use of the proverb in Israel. The days are at hand and the fulfillment of every vision. In other words, it's just the opposite. It's going to be fulfilled. It's going to take place. Jerusalem is going to fall. Now here's a second misconception. Verse 27, the vision that he sees is for many days from now and his prophecies are times afar off. So when people would hear Ezekiel prophesy, the response of the people were, and particularly the false prophets, would say, well, that may happen, but it's a long way from now. So don't worry about it. It ain't going to happen in your lifetime. You're never going to see that. And God says, in answer, none of my words will be postponed anymore. I'm reading at verse 28. But the word which I speak will be done. So in other words, we're seeing this captivity is soon going to come. That's chapter 12. Let's go to chapter 13 now, and we have the failure and doom of false prophets. What about these false prophets that were among the people? Here are the kind of things they were saying. Look at verse 2. They are prophesying out of their own heart. And I'm not reading every word of every verse, so when I start reading a verse and you're not seeing it, look toward the bottom or somewhere in the middle of the verse. That they're prophesying of their own heart, hear the word of the Lord. So what are these prophets doing? They're prophesying from their, verse 3, their own spirit, and they have seen nothing. They're prophesying and saying, I've seen a vision, or they're saying things that this is from God, and they hadn't seen a thing. So they're prophesying out of their own heart. Well, what are they saying? Well, they're speaking lies. Look at verse 8. He said, they have spoken nonsense and envisioned lies, and I'm against them, says the Lord. These prophets have told them the wrong thing. Now, verse 9, again, they divine lies, and they're speaking things that are contrary to the will of God. Now verse 10 and 11, they're giving a false sense of hope. False teachers do that. They're giving a false sense of hope. They seduce my people and they say peace when there is no peace. 
and their building with untempered mortar, verse 10. Say to those who plaster with untempered mortar. What does it mean they're, uh, they're plastering with untempered mortar? It's going to collapse and it's going to fall. It's like building a wall. And uh, if you imagine building with, with two before us and you don't put any nails in it and it looks strong, but then it's going to collapse. It's not going to stand. So they're building with untempered mortar, meaning it's false hope. It's empty hope. And that's what they're doing. They're giving a false sense of hope. Now verse 22, let's drop down to verse 22. And notice now that he says that what the false prophets are doing is making the righteous sad and strengthening the hand of the wicked. Look at verse 22. He said, you've made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad. False teachers will make sad those who are righteous and godly who know what the truth is. But that's not all they're doing. And they strengthen the hands of the wicked. By encouraging them in their sin and telling them they're okay in their sin, there's no consequence to their sin, you're strengthening their hand and encouraging them indeed to go on. So that's uh, chapter 13 now. So the failure of these false prophets, they were saying and taking the people in the wrong direction. So what Ezekiel's challenge is when he gets down into captivity, there are false prophets among the people there, just like there was and still is at this time over in Jerusalem. Now in chapter 14, idolatry is going to be punished. That's the point of chapter 14. So let's read about their idolatry. Look at verse 4. Israel has set idols up in his heart. In other words, this is the, the, his hypocrisy we see. He sets idols in his heart and puts them before him, and then he comes to the prophet and inquires of God. And I'm paraphrasing the end of verse, verse 4. Uh, and so here they, they have their idols, they have their idols in their heart. They worship their idols. Then they come before the prophet of God and say, what does God want me to do? And how does God want me to live? That's hypocrisy. That's hypocrisy. Now look at verse 5. That I may seize the house of Israel by their heart because they are estranged to me by their idols. Verse 6. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn from your idols, he says. And so here is their picture of their idolatry. Look at verse 10. And they shall bear their iniquity, and the punishment of the prophet shall be the same as the punishment of the one who, is, who, uh, who inquired. That is, the prophet is going to be led astray. I mean, the prophet who led astray is going to be punished just like those he led astray. Let's go to verse 12 to 23. Four judgments are coming in spite of righteous men. Now, what four judgments are coming? Well, let's get the four judgments, then we'll talk about the righteous men. You might look at verse 15, or let's back up to verse, uh, verse 13. Watch for this word famine. There's going to be a famine. This is how God brought judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. There's going to be a famine. That's one judgment. Secondly, they're going to be, verse 15, wild beast. Thirdly, there's going to be the sword, the enemy coming in, such as Babylon. That's at verse 17. And verse 19, there's going to be a pestilence. So here are these four judgments. And that's going to come in spite of the fact that there are some righteous people still present. Were there still some righteous people in Jerusalem? Oh, sure there was. So there, here's his illustration. Look at verse 14. It says the same thing at verse 20. He said, though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it. Now those men are not still living at this time. But he's saying, here's an example. Even if we had Noah, Daniel, and we had Job living in Jerusalem, the judgment's still coming. Only, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord. They're not going to deliver the whole nation because there's a few righteous there. Look at verse, 9, uh, verse 20. Even though Daniel and Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it as I live, 
though they, uh, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. God said, I'm not even going to spare their children if they were living, but only themselves would they spare if they were in it. So four judgments are coming in spite of righteous people being in Jerusalem. Idolatry is going to be punished. Now let's go to chapter 15. Israel is like a vine that is to be burned. This is what's going on with what's left over in Jerusalem as Ezekiel is down in captivity in Babylon. Here's what's going on. Short chapter, only eight verses. Let's see what the chapter is about. He mentions it, verse 2, he said, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any other wood? The vine branch, which is among the trees of the forest. Well, obviously the vine's going to stand for Judah and Jerusalem. And uh, how is it any different from all those that are around? The point is, Jerusalem is ripe for, disgust, uh, for, de for destruction because they're no different from any of the other nations. They've gone into sin like every other nation. Now look at verse 3. Is the wood taken from, from it to make any object or can a, man make, uh, can a man make a peg and hang a vessel on it? In other words, this wood from the vine, what value is it? Do, do you take it and make furniture from it? No, it's not, it's not. The wood from the vine's not worth anything. In other words, it's a fruitless vine, and it's not worth anything because it's not bearing any fruit. So what can you do with the wood? Well, you can't do anything with it. You can't make any furniture. You can't make a peg to hang something on. Here's what you do with it. You make it fuel for fire at verse 4, and it's burned. And so here it is worth nothing but to be fuel for fire, and once it's burned, it's even worth less than it was before. And so his point is that Israel is like that. Now notice at verse 6. Therefore, thus says the Lord, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given for the fire, so I will give up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is like a vine, and verse 9, uh, verse 8 rather, because she persisted in her unfaithfulness, that's why she's this worthless vine that is to be burnt. And so what, what do you learn practical from that? Well, how does God view me? Am I, am I a valuable piece of wood that could be, something could be done with it? So that you could take and make a piece of furniture, you could make a peg to hang something on, or am I something to be burned and even worth less once it's burned and so it's, it's product, uh, uh, does, is not productive and is worthless. Now this is an interesting picture in chapter 16. Israel is like an unfaithful wife that turned from God's love. And here's the interesting picture. Beginning in the first part of chapter 16, this is a long chapter, but we're going to uh, summarize it in, in just a few points. In verses 1 to 14, here is God's love and care for his people. It was God that made Judah and Jerusalem what they were. So here's the picture. The picture is, at verse 4, As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed nor cleansed or rubbed with salt, nor swathed in swaddling clothes. In other words, you were a rejected child. And you were left to die. And though I pitied you, and I found you in an open field, loathed and you were loathed on the day that you were born and when I passed by I saw you struggling in your own blood and I said do you live yes live uh, I said to your blood live in other words I found you like an ab abandoned child that was left to die in its own blood and I gathered you up and took care of you and I cleaned you up and I made and I salvaged you is what I did and then he gives the picture beginning at verse 8 that she grows up and now he enters a covenant with her and made her his bride so at verse 8, when I passed by again, I looked, and indeed, uh, your time was a time of love. In other words, she'd grown and matured. And I covered your nakedness, and I washed you, and I clothed you, etc., and I made you something. Now verse 11, I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist, and so I decorated you, and I gave you ornaments, so now you've turned into this beautiful 
faithful bride. I took you from this rejected child and made you something, and now I've turned you into this beautiful bride and I entered a covenant with you. Did she appreciate that? No, Israel turned away like a harlot. Now you think of that picture. Now verse 16, but you trusted in your own beauty and you played the harlot. In other words, you, you, you took advantage of my goodness and my kindness and my mercy and you played the harlot. You see that at verse 15, verse 16, verse 17, you played the harlot. Now look at verse 22. And all your abominations and acts of harlotry, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and struggling in your blood. You forgot what I did for you. Do you not remember that the story of me taking you when you were rejected and, and, and dying in your blood and I took you and salvaged you? You forgot all about that, he said. You don't even remember that. You turned and became a harlot. Now notice how brazen she becomes. Verse 30. Um, well, let's back up to verse 26. He mentions four nations here. He, that you committed harlotry with the Egyptians, and then he mentions it, verse 27, the Philistines. He mentions the Assyrians, and he mentions Babylon. So she went off to uh, Egypt. She went off to uh, the Philistines, the land of Philistia, and also to Assyria and to Babylon. In other words, she adopted Judah and Jerusalem, adopted the gods of those nations. And that's the sense in which she committed harlotry with them. So you, went, you didn't just have one episode of harlotry. You went one after nation after another and committed harlotry with everyone you could find. Now look at verse 30. How degenerate she was because she was a brazen harlot. Now notice at verse 33, here's how brazen she become. Most harlots operate like this. The men come and pay her. She didn't do that. She's paying the men. How brazen, how far she has gone. He said, that's what you're like, down through verse 34. Now, beginning at verse 35, Israel faces the consequences for her harlotry. So he pictures this unfaithful wife. What's he going to do with her? Look at verse 38. I will judge you as women who break wedlock. Look at verse 39. I will give you into the hands, and they will throw you down and break your shrines, and they will strip you of your clothes and take your jewelry and leave you naked and bare. Why is that? Look at verse 43. Because you did not remember the days of your youth. You didn't remember that I took you and made you what you became. That's what you don't remember. So it's like God's going to turn the, the nations that they turn to. God said, I'm going to turn them loose to you. I'm going to turn you loose to them. And what they're going to do is they're going to strip you and leave you bare and take all that jewelry that you have and leave you just exposed and naked and humiliated. And that's exactly what's going to take place. Now let's notice uh, one or two more things in this chapter and, and we're going to leave it and go to chapter 17. That beginning at verse 44, we're still talking about facing the consequences of a harlotry. Beginning at verse 44, there is a proverb that says, like mother, like daughter. What does that mean? You're like those that you're around. The daughter ad adopts the characteristics of her mother and you've gone among your, your harlotry, uh, the nations, and you became just like them. You became just like them is what you did. You're like your sister Sodom and your, your sister Samaria. How so? Look at verse 49. <clears throat> that look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She, her problem was pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness. Filled with pride, you're just like her. In fact, you are worse than Samaria, the northern kingdom. She did not commit half the sin. And you have justified your sisters by the abominations which you have done. That's an interesting phrase. You justified your sisters? 
You see, when we commit sin that's as bad or worse than someone we condemn, we just justified their sin. So somebody's telling lies, and I'm telling them they shouldn't tell lies, and when I do that and do the same thing and tell even worse lies and more lies than they do, I just justified them and told them their lies are okay by my actions. And that's what Judah had indeed done. All right, let's move on from chapter uh, 16 and go to chapter 17. Israel was like this unfaithful wife. She turned from God's love. Now, verse, chapter 17, here's the destruction illustrated in the parable of two eagles. Now, there are symbols, there's signs, there's illustrations all through the book, uh, and this is uh, part of that. Here's the parable of the two eagles. So in verses 1 through 10, here is the parable. What was the parable? It said, Son of man, I'm reading it, verse 2, pose a riddle to them and say to them, there was this great eagle with large wings, I'm reading it, verse 3, that came to Lebanon, uh, which would represent the land of Israel, Judah, Jerusalem, and took from the cedar the highest branch and cropped off the to uh, topmost twig and went and took and planted it, etc. Now, at verse 7, there was another great eagle that had large wings. This would represent Egypt. We're going to see the interpretation in a moment. And the vine turned its, its roots toward him, toward this eagle. And now the question at verse 9 is, will that vine thrive? Look at this at verse 3. Will it thrive? Again at verse 10. Be, uh, behold, it was planted. Is it going to thrive? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no, it's not going to thrive. You say, what's that all about? Well, here's the explanation from 11 to 24. What's the explanation? Well, the explanation is, say, look at verse 10. When they, when they want to know, what does all this mean? That... Look at verse, the end of verse 12. Tell them the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem, the king and princes, and led him to Babylon. Perhaps talking about Zedekiah. And he took the king's offspring and made a covenant, put them under oath, but he rebelled. Because Zedekiah rebelled, then there was more trouble indeed for, uh, for Judah. Now, beginning at verse 22, um, uh, it seems to be messianic, and I'm not going to deal with that right now. We may deal with that. Uh, sometime later. But here's what I want you to see from this. The parable of the two eagles represents the idea of Babylon coming in and taking the leader away to, to, uh, uh, to Babylon and the leader rebelled. So they turned their lights toward Egypt thinking Egypt is going to be our salvation and it ends up that that doesn't help them at all. So Egypt is no help at all. That's the point. Now you're familiar with chapter 18 so let's go through chapter 18. This deals with individual responsibility. So let's look at verses 1 to 4. The soul that sins, verse 4 says, it shall die. That's an answer to a proverb that had been uttered. And what were they saying in the proverb? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. You say, well, that's an interesting proverb. It's a false proverb. That's what they were saying. What they're saying is we're victims. We're suffering for what our fathers did. Our fathers are, we're paying the price for what our fathers did. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and then the children's teeth are set on edge. You say, well, that's kind of strange wording. It's like saying our fathers ate something sour and now our mouth is puckering because of what our fathers did. Well, it doesn't work that way. So the chapter focuses in answer to that proverb that each person is giving their responsibility uh, for themselves. The soul that sins, it shall die. So verses 5 to 9, what's he say here? Quick summary of that. He's saying if a man lives righteous and godly, finally at verse 9 he says he'll live. 
a righteous man will live. Well, what if that righteous man has a wicked son? What about that wicked son? Is he going to live because his father was righteous? No, he's going to die, verse 13. All right, what about that wicked son? Suppose he has a righteous son. Is he going to die because he was, his father was wicked? No, he'll live. So you could have a righteous man that's righteous, but his son is wicked, and then his grandson is righteous again. And each one gives an account for himself. That's the point. Go back to verse 4 and underline there. The soul that sins shall die. Now notice verse 19 and 20. Each one is responsible for himself. Why should the son, you say, not bear the guilt of the father? Comes back to verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. So each one gives an account for himself. Now verses 21 to 29, men can change. So what's his point here? Well, at verse 21, a wicked man, if he turns from his wickedness, then uh, he shall live, and none of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. So here's a man been wicked all of his life, and suddenly he changes and becomes righteous. What's going to happen to him now? Well, God's going to consider him a righteous man. God's going to forget about all that wickedness. All right, now verse 24. Well, what about a righteous man that turns from his righteousness and now becomes wicked? God's going to forget all about the righteousness and focus on his wickedness, and he's going to indeed pay the price for that. Now, at the end of the chapter now, um, well, let me back up to verse 25. The, the cry was, the way of the Lord is not fair. He said, no, it's not my way that's not fair. It's your way that's not fair. You see, here's what God had done. God had said, if you live righteous, I'll bless you if you live righteous. If you reject me, you'll be punished. What's unfair about that, God is asking. What they wanted was God to remember his promise. If they were righteous, God wanted, uh, Israel wanted God to remember that promise. But when they were unfaithful, they didn't want God to keep his promise then. That's unfair for God to keep his promise one time, but not another. He said, it's your way that's unfair, not my way. So at verse 30, he said, repent and turn from all your transgressions. Call for repentance, change, give all of that up. Individual responsibility. Now, chapter 19 is a short chapter. What do we have in chapter 19? It's a, it's a dirge song. It's, what's a dirge? A dirge is a funeral song. It's a lamentation. And uh, it's not called a dirge. It's called a lamentation, but that's what it basically is. And there, there are two aspects of this lamentation. Let's get to the end. The very last phrase at verse 14, this is a lamentation and become, uh, has become a lamentation. Verse 1 says, take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel. So that's how I know it's a lamentation. The text says it's a lamentation. Um, but anyway, verses 1 through 9, here was a lamentation over the kings that have fallen. So take up a song, Ezekiel, and sing this song, this lamentation. And here is the dirge. That is, in other words, have a funeral song. For what? For, for the kings that have fallen. Now, I'm not going to take the time to trace is being talked about, but here's, here's here, uh, and I will mention them, but not give all the evidence the, the, uh, of that. Here's what the song's going to say. What is your mother, a lioness? She lays among the lions, and the young lion nurses her cubs, and she's brought up her cubs, and he became a young lion, and learned to catch prey, and he devoured many, and the nations heard of him, and trapped him in a pit, and brought him in chains to the land of Egypt. And so it's a picture of a young of a mother lion raises her cubs and her cub becomes strong and he devours many but then he's taken away perhaps talking about Jehoahaz 
king in Judah who was taken away. And then she had another cup. And uh, same thing happened to him. Who was that? Well, it may be Jehoiakim, but most think it's Jehoiakim that he's talking about. I'm not interested so much which one of those was. As it is, here we're taking up a lamentation against the leaders. The leaders failed. The leaders did not protect the people. They didn't do what they should. They were taken away into captivity. Now, the second part of the lamentation is over the nation itself that has fallen in 10 to 14. So notice he said, your mother was like a vine and planted by the waters, etc. But verse 12 says she was cast down to be burned. So here's a picture of the young cub that was taken. And then here is the vine that's cut down. And that's the nation itself that's falling. So take up a lamentation against them. Uh, cry out because uh, they are fallen. Now chapter 20 focuses on rebellion and restoration. Let's notice the history. This is a historical section of the psalm. I mean, not the psalm, but it remind, I, the reason I said psalm is because it reminds me of like Psalm 106 and other historical psalms. But here is a historical section of Ezekiel of their history of rebellion. You've had a history of that. So notice what he says. There were certain leaders that came, of the, certain of the elders came to inquire before the Lord and they sat before me. And so God told it, Ezekiel at verse 3, uh, have they come to inquire before me? I'm not going to be inquired of them. Why? Because they're rebellious. So what does he say about their rebellion? Well, first of all, he talks about what happened when they were in Egypt. Now let's drop down to verse 7. When they came out of Egypt, I told them to throw away their abominations before their eyes. Leave all those idols in Egypt. Leave all of those foreign gods in Egypt. Now verse 8 you might circle, but they rebelled against me and would not obey me. And they did not cast away the abominations that were before my eyes. Nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. That's what they did when they came out of Egypt. But we're not through. Notice he said, in the wilderness, beginning at verse 10 through verse 16. What, what happened in the wilderness? He said, uh, I brought them out of, the of Egypt, brought them into the wilderness, verse 10. Now, verse 13, yet the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness and did not walk in my statutes, but despised my judgments. They were no better once they got in the wilderness. But we're not through. We finally come into uh, the land of Canaan. Uh, the land of Canaan, beginning at verse 27. Um, once they came to the land of Canaan, he said, um, yes, verse 27, Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, um, the verse 28 is the verse I'm, I'm looking for, but when I brought them into the land for which I had lifted up my hand and an oath and gave it to them, and they saw all the high hills and the thick trees, and the, they offered sacrifices and provoked me to anger with their offerings. In other words, they came into the land, and they saw it not as an opportunity to serve God. They saw it as an opportunity to go build more idols. So they had their idols down in Egypt. They brought them out. They had them in the wilderness, and they had them in Canaan is what they did. And so there's sin. That's why this nation is going to fall. Now, the rest of the chapter pretty much deals with restoration. Uh, in other words, God's going to cleanse and God's going to purify them. And uh, notice it, verse 30. I will purge the rebels from among you who have transgressed. In other words, captivity is a purging process. I'm going to purge and I'm going to cleanse this nation. And people are going to be taken away. And once the remnant comes back, it's going to be a cleaner and a much uh, better nation once they come back because they're going to be purged. Now, drop down to verse 45. He gives the picture of a forest being kindled and a fire being burned in a forest. That's what's going to happen to this nation. 
Now let's go to chapter 21. Nearly done. We're, we're going to chapter 24. Let's see what happens in chapter 21. The sword of the Lord, that's judgment and punishment, is coming. So notice what he says here in chapter 21. He says at verse 2, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem and preach. Now we're going to see Ezekiel get with it. Ezekiel's the kind of man, I mean, he gets with it and, and we're going to see him clapping his hands and, and he's going to be slapping his thigh. He is a man who gets with it. So son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem and preach against the holy place. What's he going to do? And say to the land of Israel, behold, I am against you. I will draw out my sword out of its sheath. And I get the picture later in the chapter that Ezekiel has a sword and demonstrates what's going to go on. But let's see what happens. Now, at verse 10, he said, sharpen and make a dreadful slaughter, polish to flash like lightning, that he's talking about the sword. It despises the scepter of my son. You might underline that. It despises, the, you might read over that and think, okay, I didn't get what the point was. That's a, that's a powerful point. The sword is going to despise the scepter of my son. It's an impartial sword. This sword is not going to only punish and strike the foreigner, it's going to take the kings off of David's throne. It's going to take off and handle the scepter of my son. Now notice at verse 12, now this gets interesting. He said, uh, cry and wail, O son of man, against my people and against all the princes of Israel. Terrors, including the sword, will be against my people. Therefore, strike your thigh. I mean, slap your thigh and make your point to them. You slap your thigh. And you strike your hands together, verse 14. And it seems as if he's using a sword as a prop because he says he's going to thrust it to the right, verse 16, and thrust it to the left and show indeed God's sword is coming. That must have been a, quite a visual to see Ezekiel get worked up and slap his hand and slap his thigh and take the sword and thrust it to the right and thrust it to the left. God's sword is coming and it's coming soon and he's going to cut this nation down. And, uh, and so he does. Now... <clears throat> Look at verse 25. Now to you, O profane wicked prince of Israel, whose days shall come, whose iniquities shall end. And now let's end at verse 32. He said, you shall be fuel for fire. That's how God viewed it. The sword of the Lord is coming. Now we come to chapter 22, the, the sins of the nation. Let's talk about her sins. What were her sins? We're not going to read all the verses. We're just going to list some of her sins. Look at verse Verse 2, he mentions all of her abominations. Like what? Verse 3, she sheds blood. Verse 3, she makes idols. Verse 7, she has oppressed the stranger and mistreated the fatherless and the widow. Verse 8, she has despised things holy, not respected the holy things. Verse 9, she's been influenced by the heathens. She's immoral, verse 9. And there's even immorality to the point of incest. She's uncovered her father's nakedness. Verse 12, there's dishonesty. They have forgotten God, verse 12, and that's just the beginning of the list of what she's done. Now, what about her sins? She's going to pass through the fire. Now, here's the interesting illustration in verse, verse 18. He said, Son of man, the house of Israel shall become dross. And then he says at verse 20, As men gather silver and bronze and iron and lead and uh, tin in the midst of the furnace and blow it with fire, so I'm going to, I'm going to melt you. In other words, as you take metal and you want to burn out all the impurities, you have something, you don't, I don't know what all is in this metal. So let's burn out the impurities, let's put, put it through the furnace. God said, I'm going to put you through the furnace. And I'm going to burn out all this sin and all this, this uh, impurities. Now, 
the corrupt leaders are dealt with. As the leaders go, so go the people. We don't have time to talk about all the things concerning the leaders, but I want you to notice at verse 25, there are prophets are mentioned. Verse 26, the priests are mentioned. Verse 27, the princes are mentioned. Verse 28, the prophets are mentioned again. Not only are the people corrupt, their leaders are corrupt. And therein is the problem. Now chapter 23, there are two harlot sisters. There's two harlot sisters that are mentioned here. And so let's talk about these two sisters. In verses 1 to 4, there are two sisters that were harlots. They were from the same mother, verse 2. Their names were Ahola and Aholabah. And Aholabah is mentioned in verses 5 through 10. That's the older sister, Ahola, was the older sister, Samaria. That's the northern kingdom. And she played the harlot. And she gave herself off to harlotry, verse 8. And she was delivered to her lovers, the Assyrians, verse 9, 722 B.C., they went into captivity. Now you'd think that would warn her sister that because she went into harlotry and she was destroyed because of that, they'd wake up and say, we we don't want to do the same thing. Look at verse 11. And although her sister, Olabah, saw this, she became more corrupt her inordinate love than she and her harlotry, more corrupt than her sister's harlotry. In other words, they did the same thing. And they go astray, and indeed, they are destroyed. Now, let us beginning at verse 22. The punishment is coming. Uh, we won't read all of that, but notice what's going to happen. The, the, the chariots are coming, verse 24, verse 26. They'll strip you of your clothes and take away your beautiful jewelry. Two or three times God has given that picture of going into harlotry. She goes into harlotry all decorated up to be attractive and you're going to come out stripped and barren and your jewelry is going to be gone and all your clothing is going to be gone and you're going to be embarrassed. And that's indeed what she has has done. Now in the chapter talks about both sisters are condemned. The northern and the southern kingdom are going to be indeed condemned. So there's the parable of the two harlots, the two harlot sisters. And so Israel, the northern kingdom, was like a harlot. So was the southern kingdom like a harlot. Now we come to the last chapter we're going to cover, and that's two signs. And we'll be done. What's happening in chapter 24? Chapter 24 is about two signs concerning their captivity. The first is a boiling pot. And he says, Son of man, write down the name of the day, this very day, that the king of Babylon started a siege against Jerusalem. This would be in 588 B.C same year that Nebuchadnezzar started his siege. Now, utter a parable to the rebellious house. So here's what you're going to do. Put a pot, look at verse 3, and set it up. Put on a pot, set it on, and put water in it, and put pieces of meat, every kind of meat within it, and then take out the, the meat uh, as it's cooked in, the, in the, the boiling pot. Therefore, the Lord says, I'm reading at verse 6, Woe to the bloody city whose scum is in it, In other words, here's a pot that's never been cleansed. And bring out pieces on which no lot has fallen. Indiscriminately pull out the pieces of meat. Well, the pot represents the city and the the meat represents the people. And people are going to be taken out of the city is the idea. Without discrimination. In other words, this one's going to be taken and that one's going to be taken. Some are going to be left behind 
and this one will be taken to captivity, this one taken into captivity, and this one taken into captivity without discrimination, just like taking. So he visually demonstrates before them this represents the city and this represents the people and taking, taking the people out. And then you're going to take and burn the pot so that the scum comes out of the pot. Represents the sin of the people, the sin of the city. is finally going to be cleansed. It has never been cleansed of its sin. It's going to be cleansed because the city is going to be destroyed. Now the second sign is the wife of the prophet dies. Now I don't know if you've been impressed with Ezekiel so far, but if you're not impressed by the time we get to verse 19, uh, the time we get that far, then we need to go back and rethink some things about Ezekiel. Look at verse 16. It said, Son of man, I will take away the desire of your eyes with one stroke. That's his wife. I'm going to take her away from you. The desire of your eyes. You're neither going to mourn nor weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh in silence. You're going to be upset, but sigh in silence. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban on your head and put on your sandals. Do not cover your lips. Do not eat a man's bread of sorrow. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died, and the next day I did as I was commanded. What a man. If you're not impressed with a man who got that message, you're, I'm going to take your wife away from you. Your wife's going to die. And I spoke to the people, and the wife died, and then I went and did what God told me to do. I did exactly what God told me to do. And so the people said, verse 19, what, 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 what's this about? Why do you behave like this? In other words, your wife died and, and you're not acting like you're mourning and you, you've, you've uh, not eating the bread of sorrow. You're not going through the normal things that a man would when his wife dies. What, what are you doing, Ezekiel? What's going on? Verse 21, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, I will profane my, uh, my sanctuary, your arrogant boast, the desire of your eyes. Just like the desire of my eyes was taken away, the desire of your eyes, Jerusalem and the temple, is going to be taken away. It's going to be destroyed. And you shall do as I have done, and you shall not cover your lips, nor eat a man's bread of sorrow. Your turban shall not be on your heads, etc. And uh, Ezekiel is a sign to you. So what, what, why, why would they not react? Well, either because they're stunned in shocking grief because the punishment is so strong. They never dreamed this would happen. And sometimes we're not sorrowing over something that, because we're just shocked. And that may be what's going on here. Or it may be an acknowledgement that judgment is just. We knew this was going to happen. We knew. We'd been told. And therefore, there is no shock. And that's the two signs, indeed, concerning the nation. Now, let's close with this. Let's just look at a couple of reminders of practical things we've learned. So you say, what do we take away from that? That's, that's Ezekiel. That was uh, talking about the people of the Old Testament. And, and uh, what, what do we get out of that? What's, what does that? what's in it for me? One of the things we learn is that judgment indeed is sure. God told them a judgment was coming and they kept thinking it's not coming. Or if it does come, it's going to be a long way off. It's going to be a long time from now. But judgment finally came and judgment will come for us as well. Secondly, false teachers strengthen the hands of the wicked is another thing we've learned. God views sin of his people as harlotry. See, every time we go off into sin, God views it as a husband or a wife would consider their mate when they go off into harlotry. Each person's going to give an account of himself to God. We saw that in chapter 18. And we see the sword of the Lord indeed is coming. The sword of the Lord is coming. 
And if we can learn those basic principles, our time has been well spent in the book of Ezekiel. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?